Today is April 27th. This is the Blockchain Journal podcast. I'm your host, David Berlin, and I'm at Consensus 2023 in Austin, Texas, where I'm standing with David Schwartz, who's the CTO of Ripple. And David, you just got done doing a fireside chat uh, with uh, David Chiri of the XRPL Commons. You were talking a little bit about identity and how that's one of your favorite topics to talk about and some some of your more recent work that Ripple's working on has to do with identity. You mentioned a problem where uh, today you don't have a lot of identities connected to accounts. Those accounts are anonymous in many cases. It makes it hard for, particularly in B2B contexts, for businesses to do, business, uh, to, to do their business with other businesses. Uh, so first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, pleasure to be here. What's the solution to that problem? Because today, like we watched when Siemens put they, they, they tokenized a bond on, on a blockchain, they used Polygon. They fractionalized that bond into four pieces. It was a 60 million euro bond. A bunch of other banks bought those four pieces. That's the primary market, but on the secondary market, that's a B2B context. Eventually, if you see more businesses doing things like that, these secondary markets have no idea whether it was actually Siemens that minted that thing in the first place and what they're getting. And uh, we call, at Blockchain Journal, we call this the William Shatner problem because we saw William Shatner mint some NFTs a couple of years back and we weren't sure how you would know they were actually minted by William Shatner himself and not somebody else claiming to be William Shatner. They did that on Wax and we asked William Quigley, who's the founder of Wax, how do you know that was really William Shatner? And he said, well, because we said it's so. And I thought, well, that's kind of a centralized approach. It doesn't really uh, solve the problem in a scalable fashion. It's not technological. It's more about trusting a middleman. And uh, additionally, um, it, if we look back in time, we already had something like that called certificate authorities that did that same thing for Web 1.0. And, and now I would say CAs are kind of dead. Uh, if you go to like any page that's served by Google, the certificate authority is Google, which defeats the whole purpose. So what's the solution to this problem? Well, and I would also point out that that solution might work well for William Shatner, but it's not going to work well for, and it doesn't scale, right? It's going to work well for the A-list celebrities who, you know, can some big entity can make sure that they're actually, someone can talk to like their representative. That doesn't work for, you know, ordinary people. I think the solution is going to have to be decentralized identity systems that can be bound to accounts. So, you know, I didn't mention the NFT case when I was talking in the fireside chat. I was talking more about the compliance issue for institutions, but you're right that there is an equal problem, maybe even a bigger problem with NFT issuance where if I want to issue an NFT, how do people know it's me? And the solution is going to have to be something somewhat like certificate authorities where there will be entities that will vouch for my, you know, my identity. They'll ver verify my identity in a country specific way in the United States, you know, it might be driver's license, and they'll issue a certificate that I can then attach to an on-ledger account. And then if I issue an NFT, you can see the account that issued it on the blockchain, and then you can walk your way to that certificate. Works good for people, like I can give you a driver's license, what about, what are businesses gonna do? Because there's no sort of equivalent business registry. I think there's something called Glyph that started up, but it really, I can't even get in touch with those guys. Businesses want things that scale, and when there's a technological backbone to provide that scale, if you think about what Siemens did with those other banks, they were probably all in the room pointing at a screen saying, yeah, that, that, that's our account. So you can be rest assured uh, that you're, you're not buying, you're not paying 50 million euros for something else, that's something that we're not issuing. 
So how do businesses do that? You know, I haven't really thought about that problem before. It's actually an interesting problem. I mean, there's a business need for entities that will verify that, um, that an account is in fact bound to a particular company. I guess it's going to be jurisdiction specific, whether they have a registry of corporations or some other sort of business documents that they could use. Um, I guess you could, you know, most of, most of the registries, like, you know, when you form a corporation, the, the jurisdiction where you form the corporation usually has a database that people can access. But you still need some way to bind that to an account. And I guess there's a business need for that. Maybe, uh, maybe we should go pitch that to VCs. What do you think? Well, okay, uh, we're going to go in business together. We can do that. I, I just don't know. Like, like, there are different entities working on that problem. I think the government of Australia recognized that problem, and they're taking on the role of creating some sort of central identification registry. They're partnering with industry in Australia, and that way, whether you're a consumer or a business, you can have some sort of verifiable identity. The problem is, is that works really well within Australia, but what if a business is doing... Uh, in Australia is doing business with a business in the United States, th there's no uh, interoperable way to trust, to, to build that trust. Like, like, like the, the, the company that's in the United States doesn't have the benefit of the United States doing the same thing. Well, and verifying individual identity certainly is going to be jurisdiction specific. You know, in some countries there's a national ID card that like everybody has and in other countries there isn't. And there are going to have to be businesses that have expertise. And then if you are an operator who's doing business, you know, in this sort of future world where we have these decentralized identities, you're going to have to decide what forms of identity you're going to accept. So it may be that if a business is in Australia, you will accept this particular identity provider. I do think it works better if governments are willing to provide portable digital identities because every form of identity is ultimately going to have the government probably as a hop. You know, if it's a business registry, it's going to be the government. You, you create a business by registering with the government. Uh, if it's a person, the way you tell that like two people are two different people is they have some sort of identity generally issued by a government. So it does work best if the governments are willing to issue digital identities just because they're going to be in the loop anyway and so you might as well not have additional counterparties, but there can certainly be competition for that next hop, which might be better if governments offer digital identities in some form, but not others. But I'm definitely a big fan of governments offering national identities and business identities in digital form. I'm not going to ask you questions about what's going on between you and any government entities, but Ripple is no stranger to the machinations of the government. Do you have any faith the United States could actually accomplish that in a reasonable amount of time? You know, we have a great uh, system of post offices that almost everybody in the United States can get to. I mean, it would be awesome if post offices would offer people a digital identity. I don't see a downside for the government to enable compliance. I mean, the idea that uh, the only argument you can make against it is like, I don't know, having compliant behavior builds a system that can be used non-compliantly. But the system's going to grow anyway. Like, NFTs are here. Blockchains are here. I, I can't imagine why enabling people to interact in a way that, that allows them to know who they're doing business with and sue them if there's a problem. I, what's the downside for that for a government? Well, when you were on stage, you were talking about the early days of blockchain and there was a lot of, um, I would say, religion. Uh, there might be some people who are, are married to the idea of decentralization that find the centralized nature of what you're describing to be somewhat problematic, somewhat the uh, antithesis of what blockchain is. I think the, I, I, well, I, I would push back on that and I would say, 
as long as the as long as the blockchain isn't forcing you to do that, I don't have a problem with it. I think enabling people to comply with regulations is a good thing. Coercing them at the blockchain level into compliance is a bad thing. We'll let the governments do that. You know, I'm in the United States. The United States government has the right to tell me what I can and can't do, you know, subject to the limits of our constitution. And if I want to comply with those laws, I think a blockchain should allow me to. If I don't want to, I don't think it's the blockchain's job to compel me to. I think that's where I that's where I draw the line. What about enterprises that are coming from a pretty much fully centralized world right now? A lot of businesses probably will be pretty comfortable if some part of the workflow is centralized anyway. It's not like a major departure for them. Right, and and, and let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If we can make a system, uh, you know, these systems will always have to compete with systems that don't have identity. They'll always have to compete with you know what the Bitcoin blockchain offers. And so if they if they win, it's because they solve people's problems better. And so I think more is good. You talked about institutional adoption. I think you were referring to previous technologies, and it wasn't until the institutions came in, the enterprises showed up, that things hockey stick. Do you think that's true of blockchain? I do. I think it can grow without institutional adoption, but I think that that can be a massive accelerator, and I think it's worth the effort to pursue it. And I also think that that's something that companies like Ripple can do better than can be done like in a sort of community fashion. The sort of grassroots adoption communities are great at, but institutional adoption requires like enterprise software and stuff, and so that's a role that, that companies like Ripple can play. I understand that you also have an opinion on tokenization of assets, so uh, what's, your, what's your opinion on that? I think the, the tokenization of assets is a way to enable people to hold them and move them better. And I think we're going to see a world where all kinds of assets, you know, even real world objects can be tokenized as a more efficient way to hold and transact them as a way to reduce friction. We'll see, we'll see if I'm right, but I think that you know, people have all this ownership that's scattered in all different places, ownership of digital rights, like if you have books on a Kindle, you have movies that you've purchased, and there's just video games. Your, your rights are just all scattered, and there's just such a good argument for putting them in one place so that you can manage them when you pass away, and you can control who can act access them and just it just makes such it just makes so much sense to consolidate the way to do that and I think blockchains and tokenization are the, the only technology that can do that for enterprises though where generally they drive liquidity through a public stock offering now they can take some single asset like a skyscraper tokenize that get some liquidity liquidity off that one asset by fractionalizing it you see that as being a pretty big use case I do, and I think that gives people a better opportunity to, like today, you can invest in things, but it's the sort of friction in terms of managing and controlling. It's, it's you know, I have, I, I'm fortunate in that, like, I have a broker and I can invest in all public stocks and everything. It's not that difficult for me, but for a lot of people, it is impractical for them to manage their money in a way anything close to that. And so they wind up basically holding their dollar, you know, dollars in a, in a savings account, or worse, not even having those options. So I think that as a means of financial inclusion is valuable and as a sort of uh, more fair way to raise capital. I think it's a big deal. Well, David, uh, I could ask you a million questions. You've, you're, you're an OG, you go back to, you know, over 10 years now, but uh, I think we're out of time. I know you have to move on to your next appointment. So thank you very much for joining us here on the Blockchain Journal podcast. Thanks, David. It was great being here, great talk to you. So we've been speaking with David Schwartz. He's the CTO of Ripple, and uh, we thank you. And if you want to see more of our podcasts, just go to blockchainjournal.com, or you can find our channel on YouTube. We'll see you at the next podcast.